We are honored today to welcome Dr. Annette Mendela, Director of Clinical Ethics, UT Medical Center, for a discussion of being mortal, medicine, and what matters in the end. Dr. Mendela's experience as a nurse's aide during high school and later on the inpatient psychiatric floor of a small county hospital naturally led her her interest to end-of-life issues and medical ethics. Prior to her current tenure as Director of Clinical Ethics at UT Medical Center, Dr. Mendela was a lecturer in the philosophy department at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. She was born and raised in Buffalo, New York, before coming to Knoxville in 1993. She is married to Dr. John Nolt, professor with UT's Department of Philosophy, who has been a speaker at this event on two occasions. And together, they have three adult children. Please welcome Dr. Mendela. Thank you. Thanks, everybody, for coming out. I thought I'd start us out with a poem by the American poet Jane Kenyon. And this poem is called Otherwise. I got out of bed on two strong legs. It might have been otherwise. I ate cereal, sweet milk, ripe, flawless peach. It might have been otherwise. I took the dog uphill to the birchwood. All morning, I did the work I love. At noon, I lay down with my mate. It might have been otherwise. We ate dinner together at a table with silver candlesticks. It might have been otherwise. I slept in a bed in a room with paintings on the walls and planned another day just like this day. But one day, I know, it will be otherwise. I just wanted to start us off on a light note. (laughs) The otherwise that Kenyon is talking about is not just the inevitability of death, although that was probably on her mind when she wrote it as this poem was published after her death at the age of 47 from leukemia. She's probably reflecting on on death, but also on all the limits and losses that are inherent in the end phase of a human life. Many of us, if we're lucky to live that long, face an end of life that's marked by a time when, as Dr. Gowanda says, things break down. And this is not just the physical things that break down, but losses of the things that matter to us, like independence and memory and our social connections and the ability to do the things that make us who we are. So these losses are significant losses. They're the pieces of us that we lose in that last phase of life. 
And for many of us, those are the losses that are even more fearsome than death itself. It's one of the themes. It's the theme I'm going to focus on uh, for the time that I'm speaking. We'll have a discussion as well, and I hope that other themes will come out in our discussion. But it's great, right? Um, The author, Dr. Atul Gawanda, is a practicing surgeon at Brigham and Women's Hospital up in Boston. He's a staff writer for The New Yorker, so lots of breadth there, right? Um, He is a very prolific writer of both scholarly articles and popular articles in several books, and he's just readable. He's just got a wonderful, accessible, conversational style. I I always say I would read a grocery list if I thought (laughs) Atul Gawanda had written it. So he's all that, but he's also a son and a father and a brother and a husband And the inspiration for this book comes from both his experiences as a surgeon, as a provider of medicine for those who are injured or ill and need his help, and also his experiences by the side of his father, who was stricken with a spinal cord tumor and died from that. And these two sets of experiences have led him to believe that, on the one hand, medicine is really cool. Um, uh, And if you read any of his other books, that just comes through. He's continually awed and humbled and energized by his medical practice because medicine is really good at fixing things. It's really good at fixing bodies. But medicine is not good at everything we need. Medicine fails us, at least contemporary medicine in the United States today, fails us at key moments, particularly at end of life. Because while medicine is good at fixing bodies, we are not just bodies. We are the embodied collection of our stories. We are the authors of our lives. And so when injury or illness threatens our ability to tell these stories and medicine can restore that, medicine serves us really well. But at the end of life, our bodies are breaking down. Our final chapters are needing to be written. And if what medicine has to offer is the fixing of bodies that are trying to bring this story to a close, medicine does not always know how to serve us well. And that is the thing he's asking us, to start to think and talk and listen about. Death is what happens when medicine fails, Or at least that's how many people think. Certainly many physicians feel that, even if they don't believe it in their heads. It's often, I think, how they feel. I'm good at fixing things. I'm good at helping. And it doesn't always feel like helping when death happens. This failure of medicine at end of life has been much in the news. If you read the New York Times, you'll notice that maybe about five years ago, all of a sudden, all these articles about how medicine at the end of life does not always do what we need it to do. 
We read that many people, when they're at the end of life, wind up with lots of medical interventions, lots of health care, but decreasing health. We don't find that they get the interventions that can improve their lives, just the interventions that we know to offer. And so we're not really thinking about how can we improve life at the end of life. So Dr. Gawanda's challenge to us is not to think about the interventions. What he's asking us to think about is what do we want our end of life to be like? What matters to us? How do we want to write those final chapters? And then ask ourselves, what role, if any, can medicine play in helping us to do that? He's asking us, in some ways, to reflect on a couple of very weighty philosophical questions. So, of course, I'm very happy about this. He's asking us to to think about something as huge as what is the meaning of life? What are we here for? What matters? But he's also asking us to think about a very particular philosophical question about the ends or goals of medicine. What is medicine for? I love posing this question to our incoming residents. What is medicine for? They love that. They always look at me like, are you new here or what? We know what medicine is for. (laughs) Do we know what medicine is for? Have we thought about that? Because if you don't know what you're trying to do, it's harder to do it, and it's harder to know when you've done it. (laughs) So one person who's thought a lot about this is Dr. Daniel Callahan. He's one of our most eminent bioethicists, uh, one of the founders in some ways of bioethics in the United States. And he's thought a lot about the ends of medicine, the goals of medicine. He wants to suggest that medicine has four key goals. He suggests that they are the prevention of disease and injury, and the promotion and maintenance of health, that's one. The relief of pain and suffering that's caused by disease and injury, that's going to be key, right? Pain and suffering that's caused by disease and injury. The care and cure of those who can be cured, but the care always of those who can't be cured. The prevention of a premature death, and the pursuit of a peaceful death. Callahan says one of the goals of medicine is the pursuit of a peaceful death. He's not talking about physician-assisted suicide. He's a critic of physician-assisted suicide. But he does say that pursuing a death at the end of a long, full life that is inherently graceful and peaceful is part of what medicine should be helping us to do. Notice that he does not say that medicine, the goal of medicine, is to extend life as long as possible. Notice that he does not say that the goal of medicine is to improve the lives of the already well. So he's got some very specific things in mind. They're intuitive, but they're not without controversy. 
He suggests that old age, I think I'm still allowed to say that, old age is a developmental phase. It's a developmental phase of its own. It's the time in which we review our lives. We take satisfaction with all we've done and learned. We come to terms with the things we wish had gone differently. And it's a phase that's marked by loss. Many of these losses are wrenching. They are difficult. But part of the goal, some of us remember Erickson's stages of development, part of the goal of this phase is to have the ability to face those losses, not cheerfully necessarily, but with integrity, that that's what this phase is for. And to pretend that old age is just an extension of middle age, and if you think about it, think about the commercials you see for products that are aimed at this and this phase of life, right? Everybody in these commercials looks like they're 40 with a gray wig on. <laughs> right? That's kind of pretending, and it's kind of robbing the meaning of what this last phase of life is for. It's pretending that that stuff is not real, we don't have to do, because that's hard. Taking a look at your life, taking satisfaction with what you've done and coming to terms with what you, that's hard stuff. And so when we pretend that old age is really just more middle age, um, we're robbing that phase of life from its meaning. Because while certain kinds of losses can be put off, if we're lucky and we're careful, certain kinds of losses are inevitable. So he wants to suggest that death at the end of a long, full life is sad. It's not tragic. Death at the end of a long, full life is not the enemy that we should be railing against. What we should be railing against is the loneliness and the apathy and the purposelessness that robs us of meaning in life at any stage. That's where we should be putting our energy. That doesn't mean that death at the end of a long, full life is happy. It's not. It's wrenching. It's a moment of profound grief. But it's not a tragedy. His remarks always remind me of a a quote from a book by uh, British novelist Susan Ertz. Maybe if you've heard this. She says, millions long for immortality who don't know what to do with themselves on a rainy Sunday afternoon. (laughs) I think in some ways that seems very commonsensical. On the other hand, it also seems controversial and maybe even insulting. So I'm interested to hear what folks think about that. He does say, and this is a common theme, that one of the ends of medicine is to relieve suffering. But he's very specific about what kind of suffering. And so I want to pose the question, would we want medicine to relieve all suffering? All pain, all grief, 
Because all of these things, again, they're wrenching, but they are perhaps part of what make life meaningful. And I'm reflecting here, among others, on the work of Dr. Arthur Kleinman. He is a a psychiatrist and medical anthropologist. That's not a dangerous combination, you tell me what. But um, at Harvard, and he has a very moving article where he reflects. He's writing maybe a year after the death of his wife from Alzheimer's. And he reflects that the fourth edition of the DSM, which is sort of the diagnostic guide for mental illnesses, says that symptoms of grief that persist for more than two months, that's a diagnosable mental illness. It's a treatable mental problem if grief persists for longer than two months. And he's, yeah. Yeah. And he wants to suggest that there's something wrong with that thinking. He's reflecting on the death of his wife, and he says, My grief, like that of millions of others, signaled the loss of something truly vital in my life. This pain was part of the remembering and maybe also the remaking. It punctuated the end of a time and a form of living and marked the transition to a new time and a different way of living. The suffering pushed me out of my ordinary day-to-day existence and called into question the meanings and values that animated our life. What would it mean to reframe that significance as medical? He's reflecting on a phenomenon called medicalization, which is the reframing of what was previously considered a normal human experience, reframing it as a medical problem that has medical solutions. And many people suggest that we have begun medicalizing many normal, but let's face it, unpleasant human experiences, such as childbirth, grief, aging, end of life. And some suggest that we have come to expect that we can live life without anguish, without loss, and without bereavement, that that is a life to which we should aspire, that that's a life that we should try for. And Kleinman suggests that we have come to a place where we have lost the ability to distinguish between that pain that signals us that something is wrong and something needs to be fixed or stopped, and that suffering that is part and parcel of living an engaged life. Because not all pain Not all suffering is something that we should simply bear. But some suffering, perhaps, is what we should be striving to bear with integrity. Perhaps without some suffering, life would lack meaning. Perhaps without anticipating otherwise, we would not live as fully engaged as we could be. Some of you know the quote from Leonard Bernstein, who says that to achieve great things, two things are needed, 
a plan and not quite enough time? (laughs) Maybe that's true of life. Maybe what we need is a plan, which is to say, to know what matters to us, and not quite enough time so that we never get complacent. So I want to suggest that living mindfully of otherwise is not necessarily a morbid proposition. It's not necessarily depressing. It may be the most cheerful thing we can do, perhaps, if it helps us to be grateful for now, whatever now looks like. So Dr. Gawanda encourages us to reflect on what we would like our end of life to look like, but also to discuss this with one another. And these end-of-life discussions are very much in the news. There's lots of pushes right now to get a living will, to draft an advanced care plan, to appoint a durable power of attorney for health care. But many of these conversations grew up within the medical milieu, and so they focus on interventions. So how many of us have some kind of living will or advanced? It's okay. It's not a test. Lots of people. Great. That's good. Lots of those advanced care plans, not all, but many of them, again, focus on the intervention. So there's lots of checking of boxes, right? I'm seeing a lot of nods. So feeding tube, no feeding tube. Ventilator, no ventilator, right? Lots of that kind of thing. We're focusing on, on medicine. We're not focusing on human life. We're not focusing on the lived human experience. And so what Dr. Gowanda suggests is that instead we should be asking the question, what is most troubling to you? Not just at end of life, but any time a medical conversation has to happen. What about your condition, your problem? What is it that's troubling you most? I I remember a friend, for example, who uh, was diagnosed with uh, endometriosis, which can compromise fertility. Uh, And her physician was very focused on maintaining fertility. But she was well into her 30s and wouldn't mind maintaining her fertility. But the thing that was most troubling to her was that it was painful. So she and her doctor had this disconnect. The doctor was not asking, what is most troubling to you? The doctor was saying, what does your most recent scan look like? Um, So at end of life and at all times, we should be asking, what is most troubling to you? What is it that you most want to achieve? What is it that you most want to avoid? And then we should be asking what interventions, if any, can help us to achieve that. And sometimes that goes really well, but often it doesn't. One of the things that we see that's changing, but to my mind maybe not fast enough, is the way CPR is offered. CPR, the default is that CPR is offered unless you opt out of it, which is called a DNR order. And some people have gone so far as to have DN, I am not making this up, to have DNR tattooed on their chest. If you've worked in the ER, you have seen this, right? Uh, My uncle used to work as an EMT, and he said, I would ignore that. 
And I said, if someone has gone, thank you, looks of shock, thank you, that's what I said. I said, if someone has gone so far as to have something tattooed on their chest, why would you ignore it? And he said, how do I know that he's not married to a woman named Dorothy Noreen? Right when, when it comes to CPR, we offer it as a matter of course. We don't usually ask ourselves the question, can CPR, in the event of cardiac arrest, help this patient get back where they want to go? And trying to have those conversations with families and patients is sometimes puzzling because it's already, by the time I get there anyway, it's already been offered. And so trying to have a discussion about what CPR may or may not do, they they just kind of look blank and they say, well, honey, the doctor wouldn't offer it if he didn't think it could help. And that's a very, very reasonable assumption. That makes perfect sense, except that it doesn't always work that way, sometimes, but not always. Sometimes we offer things because that's what we have to offer, not because we have thought carefully about how to match this person's life goals with what we have to offer. I think we're getting better, and I think this book is helping us have the conversations that will help us get better still. So good end-of-life discussions should focus on things like, how much are you willing to go through? This comes straight from the book. How much are you willing to go through to have a shot at being alive, and what level of being alive is tolerable to you? Those of you who have read the book will recall the palliative care specialist that Dr. Gowanda works with, Dr. Susan Block, that she asked her father these questions when he was quite ill. And he said that he would be willing to go through quite a lot of pain if he could still enjoy chocolate ice cream and football, (laughs) which completely, she didn't think he'd ever even seen a football game. So it's a good thing they had that conversation. Not long after that, he developed an internal bleed. And she had very short time to decide, do we do the surgery or not? It was a a serious, uh, complicated surgery and was going to have a long period of rehab. And left without that conversation, left to her own devices, she would have said, don't put him through that. But with just three minutes to make the decision, she knew what to ask. And so she asked the surgeon. After the surgery, would he be able to eat ice cream and watch football? (laughs) And the surgeon said, yep. (laughs) And she said, go for it. And they did. And it was a long, grueling rehab, but it was the right choice at the right time for him based on his values. And later, when things changed and his condition deteriorated, At the question about an intervention, she posed the same question and got a different answer. She made a different choice. And they focused on keeping him comfortable, and he died not long after that. And that sounds like it was probably the right decision at that time for the same person. I had a similar experience with a friend whose dad was in the hospital possibly at end of life, and she and her brother were in disagreement about what to do for their dad. One wanted to allow him to be comfortable and let him pass, and the other wanted him to continue with aggressive treatment. 
And as they were talking it through, my friend said, I don't think dad needs that much to be happy. I think he would have enough quality of life if he could just sit up on the back porch and watch the ducks. So I want him to keep going. And then when they had a conversation with the doctor who said, I don't think he's ever going to be able to sit up and watch the ducks on the back porch. It was this aha moment. And all of a sudden they had some peace. Okay, no ducks. So Dr. Gawand is asking us, where are the... He's not asking it like this. Where are the ducks in your life? <laughs> right? What are, the, what are the ducks in your life? What are the things that matter that you could not sustain the loss of and still find life meaningful? So what can we do, we patients and future patients, family members and f- future family members? Well, we can always practice good health habits, right? We can always strive to get enough sleep, and I know we're all reducing our stress levels, right? And... Um, so on. But we need to practice good existential habits, too. By that, I mean we need to ask ourselves and we need to ask each other things like, what's most important to you? Particularly, what will be most important to you when time is running short? What activities and experiences make life worthwhile? And so for some of us, that's being able to interact with family and friends. For some, it's being able to engage in physical activity. For some, it's music or being productive or making a contribution, being able to eat, talk, being in nature. We need to ask, what experiences and scenarios do you especially dread or fear or want to avoid? And for some of us, that's dying too soon. For some of us, it's feeling like a burden. For some of us, it's loss of dignity or loss of independence or pain, or dementia. And when the time comes for trade-offs, because, ironically enough, if we're lucky enough, there will be trade-offs. When the time comes for trade-offs, what losses could you sustain and still find life meaningful? And I want to recommend as some possible vehicles for these conversations two resources. One is called The Conversation Project. And some of you have seen this. Ellen Goodman, the journalist for the Boston Globe, has inspired a whole project on having the conversation. And I want to say the conversations because it's a little bit like telling your kids about sex, right? You don't do it once and go, okay, that's done. Um, You have stage and age-appropriate conversations over and over as appropriate. And talking with one another about end of life, it's the same thing. It's not one and done. It's a series of conversations. And so look it up online, The Conversation Project. And another is actually an activity using cards, um, and it's called My Gift of Grace. They call it a card game. I don't know that game's quite the right word, but it's a card activity. And it is a series of questions posed with the idea that it'll get us thinking about not just end of life, but life. And what means the most to us? The other thing is we need to listen as much as we talk. Listening is half of communication. And so in the last chapters of the book, Dr. Gawanda talks about how his father uh, was talking with the hospice nurse. And the moment that he said, I don't want to keep going like this. 
And you can tell that his mom felt kind of hurt. And she said, you mean you don't want to stay here with us? We love you. We, we don't think taking care of you is a burden. We, we want you to stay with us. And that was really important for her to say. But in the end, she listened. She let him write the final chapter of his story in full recognition that she was one of the most important characters in that story, but not the author. Dr. Gawanda knows that in stories, endings matter. So before we go on to hear your thoughts, I want to close this section of it with another poem, also by Jane Kenyon. And this is called Let Evening Come. Let the light of late afternoon shine through the chinks in the barn, moving up the bales as the sun moves down. Let the cricket take up chafing as a woman takes up her needles and her yarn. Let evening come. Let dew collect on the hoe, abandon in long grass. Let the stars appear and the moon disclose her silver horn. Let the fox go back to its sandy den. Let the wind die down. Let the shed go black inside. Let evening come. To the bottle in the ditch, to the scoop in the oats, to the air in the lung, let evening come. Let it come as it will, and don't be afraid. God does not leave us comfortless, so let evening come. Thanks for listening. I'm very interested to hear your thoughts on this provocative book. The Dr. Kleinman, yeah, Arthur Kleinman, K-L-E-I-M-A-N. Yes? Throughout our lives and, you know, as we grow older, there's another piece that's not really being discussed, and that is the cost. So I think that my saying that I want to live to 108 like my grandfather, (laughs) that's one thing. And if I get into... Medical emergency, I would say, no, no, I want to extend my life until I get to 108. Uh, And I know there's a cost, and it's a burden to family or whomever. So how do you look at that in terms of uh, looking at our lives in general? That is sort of the topic that's not allowed, right? We're not allowed to think about questions about money, questions about health care payment. It's very expensive. The, the leading cause, if, if it isn't now, it has been recently, the leading cause of bankruptcy is medical debt. Um, so we need to address that. And we need to address, I think Dr. Gawanda is right when he suggests that talking about what matters about medicine in the context of the rest of our lives is part of how those conversations can be had more comfortably. Because we've come to think that Health care equals health. It doesn't. 
right? More health care does not necessarily mean more health. Um, and we've come to believe that the way we show we care about somebody is to give them lots of health care, and it doesn't. And so asking, you know, the, the question, what if I want to live to be 108, like my grandfather, but that's going to bankrupt my family, it's going to put them out of a home, those questions need to be posed honestly and lovingly. And it's not, I almost want to say it's not fair not to talk honestly about those. I also want to suggest that that's maybe not the first conversation you want to have on the subject. So you might start with the, the hard stuff before you get into the excruciating stuff. The question about pacemakers is an interesting one. I learned a lot, actually, in the last year about how pacemakers work. So bear with me if everybody knows this, and I'm just reviewing then. So evidently, there are two basic actions that a pacemaker can perform. If the, if the heart stops, it can shock the heart back into rhythm. Some pacemakers do that. Some keep the heart beating at an appropriate rate. They call it pacing. So if you have a defibrillator only and you are on hospice care, it's usually recommended that you disable that because it's not doing anything unless the heart stops. But if you're on hospice care, the idea is that when the heart stops, we've sort of agreed that that's how you want, how you expect your life to end. So you don't want comfort, 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 and then a shock right at the end, <laughs> right? Um, but what about when the, when the pacemaker is just keeping the heart going and you're on comfort care? You're not necessarily expecting to die at any particular time, and you can still, your, your heart can still stop, but it is keeping the heart going. And if the other underlying conditions are expected to cause death and would have caused death already, but for the fact that the cardiac condition is being treated, do you see the problem? Anyone, if you haven't read it already and you're interested in the topic, um, Another resource is a book called Knocking on Heaven's Door by Katie Butler. Um, And she's talking about her father, who was in just that situation, uh, had a pacer um, and would have died from his other medical complications except for the fact that the pacer was keeping his heart going. The family believed that he would have wanted that stopped. He was no longer able to make his medical decisions. But as as in what you're talking about... um, if you, if you disable a pacer at a moment like that, death could follow immediately, like there will not be another heartbeat. And so we can kind of recognize that that's going to feel like killing somebody to lots of practitioners. And yet on the other side, for many, people will say, well, if you wouldn't put a pacer in at that moment, you're not killing someone, you're stopping something, you're not killing, you're letting die, and you're letting die from a mechanism that the person is willing to not have treatment for them anymore. So you can see it's a very vexed question. The Heart Rhythm Society has suggested, actually, they've weighed in on this, and they have said that if you can demonstrate that this is what the patient would have wanted, it's not killing, it's not euthanasia, it's perfectly medically okay to disable a pacer in that situation. However, a cardiologist can't be compelled to do something against her or his conscience because that person then has to live with feeling like they have caused a death. So I would recommend that anyone who is considering having a pacer implanted have that conversation. 
under what circumstances, if any, would I want my PACER disabled? And then, having reflected on that, put that in writing so that you can assure anyone who may come to need to provide that intervention for you will know that they're not listening to a family member who maybe is not paying attention to your, uh, your wishes, but they're paying attention to your wishes per se. One of the things that happens, I think, when someone gets taken to an emergency room and, you know, and I'll just talk about my mother. She was 92 years old. She was absolutely in agony, and she said, you know, she said, I just want to die, I just want to die. The ambulance took her to the emergency room, and she was in respiratory failure, so we didn't just want her to suffocate. And But then, even though she has a living will, everybody gets going. Now, we've got to figure out what this is and where it's from, and, and they had signed up. You know, they were going to do a heart scan and all this kind of stuff. I worried about it, so then I went in really early one morning before they did anything and said, Mom, would you like me to tell the doctors to stop trying to cure you? And she said, that would be wonderful. And so at that point, I could shut it all down. We want to take care of people. We want to make them, we want to do all these good things. Sometimes we forget it's not good because we just go into our, our, you know, frenetic action. So anyway, I just, but my mother was so grateful and she went into hospice care and died six months later and had a very calm six months, which was wonderful. Yeah, yeah, great, great observation. The checkbox forms have their place when we are sure that we definitely do want or definitely don't want. They can have their place. But for most of us, it's pretty context-dependent, right? Would you want to be resuscitated? Well, I don't know because I don't know what I can expect that to do for me. Would you want a feeding tube? Forever? Are we talking about a feeding tube and no eating? Are we talking about a feeding tube and eating? Are we talking about a feeding tube for three months and then I go back to eating? I mean, doing that reflecting, which that's the hard part, doing the reflecting and then write down, these are the states of life that I could find tolerable. These are the states of life, not so much. right? And those are the things your doctors need to know. These living wells or Advanced care plans are may or may not be sort of legally binding. A friend of mine's a lawyer, and when I showed her mine, which is all narrative, she said, get that off my property. I don't even want to, right? She said, that would never hold up in a court of law. And I said, sweetie, if it gets to where it's in a court of law, it's failed already. This is not about a court of law. This is about me and my family and my physicians. And I haven't even met my physicians yet, I hope, right? Because those physicians I'm hoping are going to be, that are going to be reading this is going to be a long time from now. But I guess my point is, would it hold up in court I don't even care, right? We sometimes think, oh, I've got an advanced care plan. Like this protective bubble kind of comes down over us, and now nothing bad can happen. And it ain't so. They're good to do, but they're not magic. These talks about how to talk to one another are things that we need to keep doing more of. So you can invite me to your church. Uh, My colleagues and I would love to continue to talk in other venues. So thank you, everybody. Thank you. I feel as though your sensitive conversation with us today has put arms around us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Book Sandwiched In, a lunchtime book discussion series sponsored by Knox County Public Library in Knoxville, Tennessee. To find other podcasts, please visit our website at K-N-O-X 
L-I-B dot O-R-G.